Kia ora. Welcome to this celebration of wild honey to our wonderful writer, Paula Green, and to these extraordinary poets here. Bernadette Hall, Scylla McQueen, Frankie McMillan, Selena Tusitala-Marsh, Jess Phoebe, and Freya Daly-Sadgrove. I want to acknowledge the mana whenua of Otatahi, Nai Tuahuriri, and the assistance of our main sponsors, Creative New Zealand and the Christchurch City Council. Now, this book has had multiple launches around the country, as it well deserves, and we're so fortunate that the pandemic has not gotten in the way of yet another launch. I'll be discussing with Paula, to begin with, the writing of this book, and then after that, the poets will come up individually and read. Afterwards, of course, you will be welcome to come and meet the poets and Paula outside and buy their books. And I'm sure after you've heard them reading, you will all want to be there. Paula has made an extraordinary and important contribution to New Zealand poetry. And with this book, to the work of women poets over the last 150 years. She's been rightly honoured for this work with the Prime Minister's Award for Poetry and being made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit. She is a poet herself with the publication of 12 poetry collections, some of them for children, as well as being co-writer of another landmark book, 99 Ways into New Zealand Poetry. She's very active on digital media with um, a very popular blog, New Zealand Poetry Shelf. I look for it every morning. And almost daily Facebook posts highlighting and reviewing New Zealand poets <coughs> and their work. Indefatigable would be one way of describing her. So we're going to talk for 15 minutes or so about this book and the writing of it. And then, as I say, you will hear from the poets here. Right, Paula, lots to discuss, lots to fit in. Um, first of all, <clears throat> title of the book, Wild Honey, what does that refer to? Um, I kind of sometimes wonder if it was because um, my partner, Michael Heiter, is an artist and he's well known for his beehive paintings so um we've been together for a long time now maybe i don't know 30 more years and i just live with honey but beyond that beyond that personal connection um i just i think um women's writing is multi-textured it's sweet and it's bitter and it's light and shadow and it's full of activity and it's sometimes secret and hard to spot and it's just many many things yeah when did you realize that not just women poets needed to have a book written about them but that you you would be the person to do that um i don't know if ever i felt that i was the person but you know, um, I went to the University of Auckland and did a doctorate in Italian. I'm not sure why. Maybe because I wanted to lead, read Italo Calvino and Dante in Italian, which I did, and it was wonderful. But I did a doctorate on Italian women novelists, and I looked at the pen that was being held. And women, at that point in the 1990s, women writers were outside the academy, and I, when I left the University of Auckland, I had a little box and I carried it out onto Silent Street. And I just thought, that's it, you know. That's the end of my relationship with the university. I had loved it, but I knew then that I wanted to be a writer and I knew then that it had to be poetry. And I was thinking over the years that led many, many up until the point of Wild Honey that I come from a line of women writing from the very first woman published in English in Aotearoa. I come from this line, but for much of the 20th century, they were hidden in the shade. They were 
excluded or they were misread or they were denigrated for topics or themes or kinds of writing. And there was like sometimes a paradigm. This is the way you write a poem or that's not a poem. And to be honest, that still can happen today. So I see it in reviews and I challenge it because I believe that a poem can be and do anything no matter who writes it. And it can affect you in multiple ways as reader and as writer. So I wanted to bring these women out of the shadow. And I was looking at the 1960s and 70s. I came of age then. I went to school wearing my Ban the Bomb badge, you know, um, anti-Vietnam War badges. Um, there was the women's movement protesting. There was the black movement protesting in the States. There were all kinds of protests. It was, you know, we wanted a better world. We were really fighting for a better world at that place. And writers in New Zealand in the 60s and 70s um, were, in a way, challenging the writing that had preceded, wanting to do new things, be fresh and challenging and vibrant and break down walls and a million things, right? And yet <coughs> Arthur Basting published an anthology in 1973 or four, I forget when, called The Young New Zealand Poets, and there was one woman in it, Jan Kemp, and I'm thinking, what was happening with all the other women who were doing innovative things? Not necessarily in the same way as those men. So, for example, I look very fondly upon the writing of Fiona Kidman because, for me, she really affected me in the 1970s. And Rachel McAlpine, these were women who were changing things for the woman in the home, the mother, the wife the woman who was learning to, to be a different kind of woman. And so Fiona's writing was revolutionary for me, as was Rachel McAlpine's. You know, and Rachel McAlpine was responding to Sam Hunt, going, well, hang on a minute, I'm going to write in a different way. And so if we come right through from there up until this present point in history, what we have now is an astonishing wave of women writing and visible. And so look at Starling, which is a fabulous online site for writers under 25. <laughs> so far they are mostly women, um, different gender labels, but there is this extraordinary explosion of strong, confident women on the scene. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yes. So you weren't short of women poets to write about, were you? No. Oh, but I did have to go to, you know, I spent yeah. a lot of time in it. I loved the Macmillan Brown Research Library and I loved going to the Alexander Turnbull Library. I, I just got goosebumps going in there. I picked up um, a book by Eileen Duggan in the Macmillan Brown Library here in Christchurch. And it was her book, Birds. And it's usually about this big. But she had made it double the size with her self-doubt. She had changed every poem in the book, writing notes, putting in little things. Oh, this is terrible. It's got to be like this, changing words. And it was, I just felt like this is the most astonishing thing. You know, I have that doubt. I, I will be doing a reading and editing on the spot. Oh, that, that poem's a disaster and changing a word, you know. But there it was, this... And I, I tracked that self-doubt. And I'm not saying it's just what women have. Lots of writers have it. Across generations, that doubt, that lack of self-esteem. And it's not surprising when women weren't being freely admitted into the canon, you know, when, when there was a thing, well, that's not a poem. Honestly, with it, when Wild Honey came out, I've had people say to me, well, Eileen Duggan, well, she's not really a poet, you know. That's like within the last couple of years. So there is still that idea of what a poem can be, whereas I think a poem can be anything. So why did you choose those particular three old, and when the I say one, older yeah, women yeah, yeah. poets, I mean in time, <laughs> Jessie Mackay, Blanche Bourne, I mm. presume that's how you say her name, yeah, and yeah. Eileen Duggan. What was it about those three um, that you decided needed to be brought out? I think theoretically they were the first um, women published in English and um, they went through huge doubt. And when I first picked up their books, it was like, do you know, I often feel like there's a bridge between you and the book. And so 
I had Bill Manhire as well on the aeroplane coming down, and there was just this really accessible bridge. And I'm on, I felt, I was so excited reading it. I just wanted to, along with the fact that I'm out of lockdown Auckland, and I wanted to dance in the aisle, and I had music on my headphones, and I'm reading well, and I'm just saying, this is just a wow moment. There was a bridge there, and I was so in that poetry. But with these three women, I couldn't cross the bridge. And so I went to the archives, and I read letters, and I read journals, and slowly... I found these poems opening up to me, and I absolutely love them. And I get quite passionate about the way in which I feel some academics hijack, and I've been an academic, hijack poetry to serve as a theory. And so the poem gets lost, you know. And I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to show you that that poem can be read for its own sake, for its own joy, for its own pleasure, whatever challenges, you name it. That can happen. And um, I felt, as I was discovering more things about these women, I found these women are fierce. These women, they're not just isolated. Most, they live mostly in um, Christchurch. Um, they were in contact with the rest of the world. They were in contact with suffragettes. Blanche was fighting for prison reform. Um, Jessie Mackay was concerned about, you know, people who were disadvantaged. There was... They were writing letters to the newspaper. And I, I just felt completely inspired by them that I felt, I want some foundations here. I want to show I don't write out of nowhere. I write out of the women who paved the way. From those ones to Mary Stanley in the 1950s, the wife speaks that poem, right through into the present day and these young women like Freya and so many more who are inspiring me, you know, with their different luminosities. And I felt like what I recognised with those three women is that, you know, that bridge that's hard to cross, I take my body into the work. You know, that's what I did with Bill's book on the aeroplane. That's what I did with Jackson... Newland's magnificent I am a human being, which I just reviewed for Poetry Shelf this week. I take my whole body in. I take my heart, my inquiring mind. I take my ears to listen out for that music, and I take my eyes. And everything like this is a whole body response that provokes me to laugh and cry and feel challenged and moved and comforted. And in this age, it's just gold. <laughs> And so the book is idiosyncratic. It's you. You're in here in, in every word and every phrase. And it, <laughs> you don't stay back as a detached academic. You're, you're wrestling with the poems. You're, you're laughing and dancing with mm. the poems. And the way you've structured it is, is so interesting because... You've, you've gone for the sort of interior and exterior spaces and, mm. and um, places. And yeah. They're, they're not just physical spaces and places. They're mental, emotional, liminal places. It's like, you know, when I, I love working with children and, and they will always say to me, where do you get your ideas from, Paula? And I will always say, well, it's a mystery. I'm just going to be walking along the beach. I like to go on the beach at 7 a.m., Michael runs and I walk and this idea just drops in my head and I thought I'm going to build a house for women. I don't know where it came from. But then it started to make sense that, you know, for all the denigration of the domestic, I, my first book I called Cook House, like the kitchen in the countryside that feeds everyone because I, I love cooking. Never had a day in my life when I don't like cooking. I love it. And so I decided I'm going to reclaim the domestic. I'm going to, I've got the most beautiful study wall-to-wall -wall books of poetry, view of the bush. And I thought, no, I'm going to go to the kitchen. Our kitchen doesn't get the internet because we live in the country. My study does. So I'm going to be off the grid. I'm going to be getting up, bake the bread before COVID, yes, and cook the dinner. There'll be flour. There'll be me chatting with my adult daughters and Michael and, you know, just all those domestic intrusions. I love the idea of my book coming out of this because I knew of so many stories of women who got up three hours before their children did to write, you know, in those precious times in between doing the mother role, the wife role, and everything else they wrote. So I'm going to write this book in the kitchen. I'm going to build a house with many rooms. 
not enough rooms to accommodate everything I wanted to put in there. I had this queue of women in a door in my head that wanted to be in the book, and I'd wake up at I wake up at three a.m. a lot, crying, thinking I can't fit them in, you know. But I wanted to build this house. I wanted to open out the windows. I wanted there to be movement, and I wanted other people to build their house. I wanted Selena to build her house for Pacifica women. I wanted a woman to build one for Maori, and from that perspective, and so many other perspectives. But it felt, it just felt right, you know. And to go out of the house into the outside world, and just give you this thing with this one aim that you would be inspired to go and pick up a poetry book and read it and find your own pathways through it. And I think I was inspired to do this in a way that was making me present, that was personal, but, you know, in a quiet kind of way. Because I'm reminded of Becky last night saying that when she was at secondary school, she failed. Well, I failed secondary school too. I went through primary school with this intense love of learning. When I hit secondary school, I was the square peg in the round educational hole, and the system failed me, and I didn't know how to deal with it. So I left education for 10 years, lived in London, and then I went to university, and I still felt uncomfortable. And so this book, All Roads Have Led to It, me as a mother, partner, friend, friend to the poetry communities in New Zealand, this book comes out of that, and it comes out of just, I don't know if it's embarrassing or old-fashioned, but it just comes out of my love of writing. That's it. It's a joy to do, and I can't say, you know, that's, that's it. And I think we should hear the poets read. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> because we, we're going to head to the poetry now, yeah. into the poets. Um, I just have to get my read, reading glasses on. Having done this, I was at the Wellington Writers Festival earlier this year and I just got new glasses. And I had the wrong glasses on. It was incredibly difficult. <laughs> I had to wing it. And I, I, I have not grounded yet. I do, feel, I do feel still in lockdown from Auckland. We've only been out of lockdown for a couple of weeks, level one, and I'm not used to it. And last night at that party in the room with all those people, I haven't been in the room with more than three people since February, so I felt like a ghost, and I talked to people. I talked to you, and it was lovely, but I don't know. I woke up at three o'clock and thought, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thank you for that, Mahi. We've been friends for a long time, so it meant a lot. And it's with great delight I introduce our poets. They'll each read for five minutes, one of their own or two, and one by another woman. First of all, Scylla McQueen, former poet laureate, author of the fabulous memoir In a Slant Light and numerous fabulous poetry collections. This is what I wrote about her in Wild Honey. I want to bring bring Wild Honey into the room a little bit. Scylla is attracted to free-ranging subject matter, the ability of poetry to sing, to embrace the complex, and to cherish simplicity. She resists rules and poetic models unless they're of her own making. She listens to the world about her and at a distance and recasts it with verve and originality. I wrote this quote in the book from Scylla, which I actually, I, I really love this. Scylla wrote, Poetry leaves me in a state of never knowing what's going to happen next. Please welcome Scylla. Thank you, Paula. That's right. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. It's very nice to be in Christchurch. I haven't been here for a long time. And um, it's rather like Invercargill. <laughs> I mean, it's most more, more exciting than Invercargill. <laughs> and I live in Bluff, so that I'm allowed to make jokes about Invercargill. Um, but Invercargill's already just pulled itself to pieces, you, you may know, uh, this large swathes of Invercargill that looks very much like the view out of my hotel room, which is uh, interesting. I I don't know if they'll get round to building it back up again very quickly. But still, it's a good place to live. One of my favourite original women poets is Ruth Dallas, 
who worked quietly in Southland for a very long time, and apart from the support of uh, Charles Bresch uh, and a few other kindly people, was resolutely ignored um, as a serious woman poet. But uh, there was something that you said about cherishing simplicity, Paula, uh, which is what uh, speaks to me in Ruth's work. Um, Here's a poem of hers called Pioneer Woman with Ferrets. You'll know it. Preserved in film, her waist nipped in, skirt and sleeves to ankle, wrist as under glass, voluminous in the wind, hat to protect her Victorian complexion, large in the tussock, she looms, startling as a mower. Unfocused, her children fasten wire netting round close-set warrens, and savage grasses that bristle in a beard from the rabbit-bitten hills. She is monumental in the treeless landscape. Nonchalantly, she swings in her left hand a rabbit, bloody nose down, in her right hand a club. That gives you an idea of the sort of strength that actually is behind Ruth Dallas, even though she speaks so quietly and simply. You know there's a pretty fierce old girl in there. Here are two poems, short ones, for uh, somebody who would be a friend of many of you, um, Joanna Paul. And these poems I chose because they were written about 30 years apart, or 20 years apart. And one of them is from Dunedin, uh, about visiting her in her kitchen. And the other one is after she had died and left us very quickly and sadly, um, remembering her. And the two poems are much the same in length. So the first one, Joanna. I visit my friend's kitchen. There are roses on the floor and a table with pears. Her face is bare in the light. She smiles. She has hung a curtain. I like the darkness inside our Dunedin houses, even in summer. The doors that open into the hall, the front door that opens into the sun. And then 20 years later, a grieving poem for Joanna. Joanna too. Her hands lay colour, light as lips on paper, with the utmost care. In faith, the soul may leave us as the sun, the hills, effacing shadow with all shadow, or the moon, the sea, Reflection rippling into time between. The space in the world that held her invisibly healing. Thank you. Tusiata Avia was going to be part of the session, but sadly she couldn't. She will be launching her book later on today, The Wonderful, The Savage Colonizer. The Savage Colonizer book will be launched tonight. I dedicated Wild Honey to Tusiata. Um, so I'm just going to give you a, a little tiny, tiny taste from Wild Honey, something I wrote about her poetry. Alongside the anguish and intimacy of self-reflection, Avia moves into the world where she forms opinions and attachments, where she loves and discovers and is fueled by challenging notions of good and bad, roused by the unspeakable toll of human suffering that must be broadcast. And I think she does that in her new book. 
Next up, I'd like to welcome Jess Phoebe. Jess Phoebe was runner-up in the Sarah Broom Poetry Prize. Her debut collection, My Honest Poem, appeared earlier this year. And in my review on Poetry Shelf, I said, My Honest Poem is a move towards new beginnings. The poetry is fresh, succulent, and lyrical. Perhaps the most moving collection I've read this year. It might be difficult for some readers, but this is a poetry arrival to celebrate. It took courage to write this book, and it took a finely tuned ear and eye to achieve such poetry gleam. Please welcome Jess. Thank you so much for having me um, here today. It's a huge honour to be included in this lineup of amazing, talented women. Um, I would like to acknowledge two of the women that have played a really significant part in my writing. Um, the first one is actually part of this set, Frankie McMillan. Uh, Frankie was my tutor at the School for Young Writers, and I spent time with Frankie about two hours a week for three to four years between the wow. ages of 13 and 17. Wow. Um, and she taught me two big lessons which I have taken with me and still inform my writing now. Those lessons are brevity is really important in poetry. Poetry is a democracy and every word is as important as... They're all equally important. Um, the space on the page is as important as the words. The other thing Frankie taught me is that the specific is universal. It's specific detail that your reader will connect to, not broad descriptions of experiences that we all have, but the specific, minute, sensory elements of those experiences. That's the gold. So I'd like to thank Frankie for everything she's taught me. The other woman that's been really important in my, um, that lit the fire in my belly in the first place was my grandmother. Um, I recently spent a week with her. She had a stroke last week and she has Alzheimer's uh, and she is turning 90 in two weeks' time. So she's an old girl um, and, you know, in the thick of the fog of her Alzheimer's and with the stroke, she was still able to recite Wordsworth word for word. She was still able to join with me in um, reading poetry and enjoying it and when we did that together over the last week, I watched her confused mind transform and, you know, that's the power of poetry. It's memory, it's transformation. Um, and so the first, she is the subject matter of the first poem I'm going to read. Divination. It started when the grapefruit tree, usually laden with orange globes, grew only four. The house began to smell different. Windows unopened, my grandmother's soft, thin skin no longer powdered and sweet. When a starling flew inside, its spiny wings panicked and scratching against the window, she gazed past it, her hazel eyes following clouds. Nestled in eggshells and used tissues, I found the deep red stones she wore around her neck the day my grandfather died. When I fished them out and asked her, she could not recall my name, but said that in July 1963, a wasp stung her left thigh, and her life's never been the same. <laughs> I could hear her dreams through the walls, of moons and black butterflies, of newborn babes with long fingers, and worn-out shoes piled high on tabletops. The second poem I'm going to read is by one of my favourite women poets, Ada Lamon. It's about her experience this year of living in a world with COVID-19. It's called Not the Saddest Thing in the World. All day, I feel some itchiness around the collar, constriction of living. I write the date at the top of a letter. Though no one's been writing the year lately, I write the year. Seems like a year you should write, so huge and round and awful. In between my tasks, I find a dead fledgling, maybe a dove, maybe don't know, to be honest, too embryonic, too see-through and wee. 
I don't even mourn him, just all matter-of-fact-like take the trowel, plant the limp body with a new hoster under the main feeder. Seems like a good place for a closed-eyed thing, forever closed-eyed, under a green plant in the ground, under the feast up above. Between the ground and the feast is where I live now. Before I bury him, I snap a photo and beg my brother and my husband to witness this nearly clear body. Once it has been witnessed and buried, I go about my day, which isn't ordinary exactly, because nothing is ordinary, even when it is ordinary. Now something's breaking, always, on the skyline, falling over and over against the ground, sometimes unnoticed, sometimes covered up by sorrow, sometimes buried without even a song. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> the next poet is Frankie, Frankie McMillan. She's the, a poet and author of some of my favourite flash fiction, of her most recent book, The Father of Octopus Wrestling, I love that title, and other small fictions. I wrote this on Poetry Shelf. Not far into reading, I began to muse on the idea of original writing because the book is so invigoratingly original. I'm fascinated by the origins of these short fictions, for they're shaped by an aeronautic imagination and perhaps, who knows, specks of real experience. The realness is luminous, yet the sharp compounding detail does its work beautifully. Yet each fiction offers tilts and kinks and little spikes of strangeness. Please welcome Frankie. Tina Koto. Thank you so much, Paula, for those kind words. And um, Jess, I'm, I'm so touched by what you said. Thank you. Um, I was thrilled to be included in the anthology and um, especially pleased that I was in the hammock section. <laughs> I spend a lot of my time in the horizontal position, um, lying in bed and on the couch, and it may look as if I'm pretty lazy, but actually I, my brain is working overtime as I'm thinking through poems. And there's a, uh, a mention in Wild Honey um, about an exchange between um, Gregory O'Brien and Janet Frame, and Janet Frame is talking about her poems and how they never seem to live up to the title of poetry. And she said that her poems are all explorations and that one day she would like to write a poem. <laughs> and I feel as if my poems are often explorations, straddling as they do between narrative and poetic techniques. And so I'm going to read a prose poem. Um, and I've chosen it because it's is about three generations, and this is a three-generational woman's poet reading as well. The winter swimming of my grandmother. People see my grandmother walk down the road with a towel over her shoulder. The local pig hunters, burly men in thick plaid jackets and fur-lined boots, shake their heads in disbelief. They think she's going for a dip somewhere. They imagine the brief frenzied plunge of an old woman. Don't tell them where I go, she says. My grandmother swims naked. She swims serious. She swims in the lake from the bank right over to the reeds on the other side, her pink woolen hat bobbing above the water. My aunt insists upon the hat. She's read up about hypothermia. <laughs> I don't want to have to pull you dead from the water, she says. Ask my grandmother if she feels the cold, and she laughs. She says the strange thing is, is that when she climbs out of the water, her bare skin is flushed and tingly, as if she's been spanked. She begins to stay in the water for longer. Snow piles up on the woodshed roof. When my grandmother walks to the lake in her rubber boots, she leaves behind a mushy trail of watery drift. My aunt gets up before her, sneaks down to the water with a thermometer. 
Who knows what would happen when the ice is too thick to break? Who knows if the pig hunters silently watch my grandmother swim, small, brave animal that she is? And who knows what makes the woman in our family go against the tide, strike out with such singular force? The next poem I'm going to read is by um, Imtiaz Darka, and uh, she's a British poet that spends her time between London and Mumbai. And there's a line in the poem that really caught my attention, and it's, the known world cracks. And it seemed to be such an apt line for the times that we're now living through though I have to confess it was the title of the poem that really drew me in, The Elephant is Walking on the River Thames. Um, it's based on historical fact. In 1814, they had um, what was called a frost fear on the frozen River Thames, um, and they had um, um, a carnival-type atmosphere where there was cooking and things were being sold and traded. The elephant is walking on the River Thames. The whole city has come out to see the river frozen over, solid enough to light a blazing fire and spit roast a whole ox. A suckling pig sparks in the air, fat hissing on silver, mutton pies sizzling, red-nosed boys slide past St. Paul's, Horses pull sledges of coal under the bridge. And then this. An elephant steps carefully onto the ice. The known world cracks. Reality lumbers over the edge. Hawkers freeze, pour ale into midair as the creature sails by, more graceful than any stilt walker or skater. Later, they will recall it like something suspended in time, like first love at the last frost fair. They will say, that was the day I was there. And there's a little addendum to the poem. It's called First Sight Through Falling Snow. The elephant looks at the cathedral. It looks back. Their hearts tangle. <laughs> Our next poet is Freya. She's a writer, performer, and theatre maker from Porniki. I got to see Freya in the unmissable poetry ensemble Show Ponies at the Wellington Writers' Festival this year, and she and her friends are doing an updated, she was explaining it to me last night, doing a little version for me, it just sounds so exciting, in Verb, which is coming up later this week. Her debut collection, Head Girl, appeared earlier this year. Hera Lindsay Bird is a big fan, and I can see why. This is poetry with tearing and torn self-exposures, lightning-cracking lines, sharp edges and blinding glints. I seem to be, I seem to be favouring glints and gleams in poetry at the moment. I think I'm heading for the light. This is a poetry undressing for the reader. It's tough and it's breathtaking. Please welcome Freya. Kia ora koutou. Um, it's really, it's really special to be here. Um, special to be in this event and special to be in Ototahi, um, where so much of my family lives, who are here, which is mm. so yeah. nice. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> I was having self-doubt this whole time, changing my mind about what, what poems to read. Um, so I've just... I just I got thrown caution to the winds, and I just have to do the one that I ended up with um, a bit of paper in it. <clears throat> and then I'm going to read... One by a dear friend. <clears throat> this poem is called Dystopian Novel with Me as the Central Character. I wrote it before this year happened. <clears throat> in the future, everyone in the world is depressed. It is known as the global down buzz. In the future, 
kissing has become lowbrow art. Theatre is generously funded and is performed on outdoor plinths so high that no one has to watch. In the future, you can have surgery done to invert your eyeballs and rig lights on the underside of your skull. In the future, people tell the truth. They tell it energetically and all the time. It is almost grotesque. In the future, during sex, couples scream the names of other people over and over until climax. Then they hold each other and cry. In the future, what youths do at parties is they just get together and hurt. Wow. Like physically, with injuries, new injuries. In the future, at cafes and restaurants, instead of a steady hum of chat such as we in the present day are accustomed to, there is a sort of grating sound. Everyone contributes their own groan and finds that it builds a sense of community. And where are the children? In the future, they are educating themselves and each other. They are gathering in town squares and on the banks of rivers, at intersections, on hills, under bridges, and in the gardens of strangers. And they are just watching and making notes. What else? Ah. Oh. In the future, people embrace the aging process. Beauty products contain more acid. And in the past and the future, people began a practice of pulling out their adult teeth at 21st birthdays, which they would then gift to city councils who used the teeth to build great monuments to peace. In the future, this practice continues, but with less anesthetic. As for the monuments, they have got so tall. One other thing I know about the future is that in the future I am dead. The coroner's report says I buried myself under one ton of beanbag beans and asphyxiated. <laughs> um, I'm going to read a I had to read a poem by my friend Ursula Robinson Shaw, um, who is one of my one of my longest longest oldest friends and, and dearest. Um, she's the sharpest person in the world, which sometimes causes problems. Um, but I'm lucky to um, always always um, be on the... I, I get her softness, um, which is really, really special and really luck, lucky for me. <laughs> and also, she, um, uh, she, she teaches me how to be a lot bigger and braver than I, than I think I can be. Uh, and I'm going to read a poem called so Sonnet for the Good Meat, which is published in Orongaho, um Best New Zealand Poems 2019. G says the only way to write a love poem is to make sure you've never read a sonnet before in your life. There's something nice about it, though, exclaiming, my wife, mentally adding, comrade of my ideals, companion of my battles, daddy of my children for future battles. In the worst words of your favorite economist, love is Jenny, Jenny is love's name. So I call you Jenny to be polite. Jenny, Jenny, Jenny. Jenny, we are fucked from the perspective of eternity. Jenny, it's scary, but that's the price of freedom, lolling around in the interminable present. Jenny, if the most effective political message takes place in the forum of jokes, maybe the hideous confections of the heart do too. Jenny, according to my own bad pleasure, lie on my floor. Jenny, until I say so. Jenny, your beauty like a stolen watch. 
Jenny, you will read for me the news. Jenny, you will pay for the wine and dine. Jenny, you will read for me the new manifestos. Jenny, you will shelter me from cold. Jenny, your father is very rich. Jenny, if for a moment I stop saying Jenny, will the entire spectacular dissolve? Jenny, what big teeth your ex-girlfriend has. Jenny, why did you two get dinner? Jenny, you bunny from the blue. Jenny, don't make me a boiler. Jenny, why don't you praise me? Jenny, why do you spurn the grimy tactility of my floor covered in clothes? Jenny, we cannot let the fascist dictates of storage solutions win. Jenny, Jenny, Jenny on this truncated timeline. Jenny on this profligate earth. Jenny, you fastidious bitch. You total bastard. Jenny, in the best words of your least favorite philosopher, I am ready to sell my mother into slavery just to fuck you forever. Jenny. <laughs> See what I mean? Um, next poet is Benedict Hall, poet and editor. Brought Joanna Margaret Paul to us again and Lorna Stavlianka deservedly won the Prime Minister's Award for Poetry. She's launching Fancy Dancing New and Selected Poems tomorrow night. I'll be there. This is what I wrote amongst many other things in Wild Honey. I've got the wrong glasses on. Oh, I've bought them all this time. When I was in the optician place, I said, I'm going to get different coloured frames. And I walked out and thought, oh, I, did, I didn't. They're both black. <sighs> Uh, I have held her poetry close to my heart since I first started reading it because it makes me want to write. You might find that some poetry makes you want to write. Who writes of the world close by and distant? Her poems deliver simplicity, warmth, intricacy, beauty, surreal wit, humour, keen thinking. She's unafraid of translating experience, feelings, memories, and her mind into poetry. Whatever the subject, from childhood to her time in Antarctica and Ireland, from settler stories to Irish tricksters, from the bush to the mountains, the mountain that anchors her, Hall writes with a musician's acute ear. Please welcome Bernadette. Thank you um, for those very lovely words. I'm now going to read some very unlovely, <laughs> boisterous sonnets. Good. Um, and uh, a little bit of boisterousness from my dear friend, Dinah Hawkin. So boisterousness from two old women is not a bad idea. So the two sonnets that I'll read are from Fancy Dancing. And, um, yeah, I might have sounded sweet in the past. I'm not sure I sound so sweet now. Mm. All right. When I took off the ring of invisibility, I could see the dragon more clearly, but I couldn't remember its name. Clerical authority, suggested Phaedra, and all the women started laughing. Peace, sisters, peace. Thank you for the book he wrote, The Lovely Gypsy Rover. I want to pat it, feed it, bring it to table with raucous guests who begin by ignoring it, but later on find they are dreaming it. I can hear your voice so clearly, the slightly hoarse lilt as you finish a sentence that will always be a question. The dragon opens its horrible eye. So, you're the old lady who swallowed the metaphorical fly. Whoops, perhaps you'll die. <laughs> I've been reading The Hobbit. I like reading The Hobbit every now and then. Mm. Um, uh, there is a character in these sonnets called Phaedra, and she says all the things I really want to say. Mm. So this next one, um, it comes about, I was teaching at the IIML in 2011, and this odd word, reprise, came in. These were MA students, and um, Chris Price said to me, well, they can do a reprise. And I've never heard of a reprise. Maybe it comes up in ballet or something. I don't know. And um, then I found out it meant you could do the whole thing all over again. And that seemed to me rather extraordinary. Uh, some of the scenes in this, it's a Wellington poem. 
And it's as if I've come to that point after the end of the last poem, and I've gone over to somewhere, uh, and there's some kind of judgment. And I don't think there's an elderly gentleman with a beard, but there could be a rather ample lady who looks a bit like a Greek goddess. So, in fact, the title of this sonnet is, Here I Go, Trying to Make a Deal with the Goddess. You know what I'm talking about. After death, judging, yeah. I've got to make a deal. I just can't let it all go without arguing. She said aquatic, and there was the supercharged groundwater and the stormwater drain, and there was the rabbit man again breathing through the trellis. I could see the rolled satin cordage that exed across her back. I could see the great ass on her. Don't hassle me, I said, about the splash club. They're always advertising for girls who can swim and who don't mind spending a long time underwater. Take the ornate casing over the portholes. Take a few timely cuts. Take the Chevron window of the old Pontiac. Surprise me. She offered me a reprise. But I thought she said a reprieve. And for a moment I felt grateful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so wouldn't really want to live the whole thing all over again. So the, the, um, the other boisterous writer, uh, Dinah, this really beautiful book. I love that poem. Small Stories of Devotion. It's just such a stunner. So I'll read from that. The harbour is a whipping boy, and the weird, arrhythmical wind is the whip. Water and leaves and berries and stems are whipping away from it, and I'm crying, every other natural thing has rhythm, while it winds on, winning the case for chaos again, and gusting its guts out again. Big logs are lying about on the beach like a bunch of old people, splitting their sides and rolling about with one leg or an arm or both or all four in the air, they're laughing their heads off, and the joke's not over. Soon they'll pass out and float off, enlightened, between the high tides. Nature is lifting her side of the table. The feast is sliding in all its delectable glory down onto our laps and spilling over onto the marble floor. What a finale. Napkins flying and flashing, high alarm, then outrage. Who will clean this up? Where are the staff? <laughs> it's rather lovely. I live at Amberley Beach and um, <clears throat> three minutes to the Tasman Sea in one direction and three minutes to a lagoon in the other direction. And um, I can see um, David sitting here who warned us when we bought the house <laughs> that was in an inundation, inundation area. So I sort of like to live dangerously, I guess, at this late stage of my life. And I think that... Um, I'm very grateful to Scylla. Uh, this is the cover of the book. It's the first time I've actually put myself half on the front. Um, and Scylla had a marvellous book called Crikey. And do you remember that Scylla and you were down on um, St. Clair Beach, standing between those um, old posts of the old, the old um, pier. And uh, at one stage, Scylla came to Villa Maria, where I was uh, teaching, and she said, um, you, you should try, you should try, you know, a writing life. And I thought, ah, oh, I could never do that. So I owe you quite a lot. <laughs> I'm very grateful. Um, and thank you. <clears throat> thank you. Our last poet, um, Selena, former poet laureate extraordinaire, poet on the global stage, author of the much-loved children's book and memoir, Mophead, um, like to theatre... Her support through the obstacles and joys of creating wild honey meant a lot to me, and her poetry is a gift. I just want to read a quick taste of something she wrote that I put in Wild Honey, because it's kind of how I feel about poetry too a lot of the time. So this is what she said. I guess it begins with movement. Like something has to move me emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and then it has to fit right in my mouth, which doesn't necessarily mean it has to rhyme, but that words must be able to mill about together on the tongue, fitting in the mouth, and on the tongue often mean, means that the words dance with each other, shedding each other's rhythms. Juxtapositions are important in order to disrupt expectation and widen the reading audience. For example, what happens when Muay Thai kickboxing, a tradition to Valu dance and grief, move together in the same space and on the same page? 
well, a poem has to move someone else. And I like that idea that poetry, it does move us. And that's exactly what your poetry does, Selena. And in fact, so much New Zealand poetry, which is why I just can't stop doing Poetry Shelf, because I'm constantly being moved by the books that get sent to me. Please welcome Scylla. We're nearly out of time, so let's end with Selena. Thank you. Sorry. Hello, oh. Falava. Um, I forgot my poetry books, but I remembered the glitter. <laughs> I am um, going to read the poem of my BFF, Tusiata Avia, who is one of the most bravest people in the world. And I thought it was apropos last night I read a poem called On Breaking Up with Captain Cook on our 250th anniversary. <laughs> And in the Savage Colonizer book that we're launching tonight at 7.30, she has a poem called 250th Anniversary of James Cook's Arrival <laughs> in New Zealand. And we juxtapose each other. So <laughs> this is Tusiata. Hey, James. Yeah, you in the white wig in that big endeavor, sailing the blue, blue water like a big asshole. <laughs> Fuck you, bitch. <laughs> James, I heard someone shoved a knife right up into the gap between your white ribs at Kealakakua Bay. I'm going to go there, make a big makahiki luau, cook a white pig, feed it to the dogs, and fuck you up, bitch. Hey, James, it's us. These days we're driving round in SUVs looking for you or white men like you, who might be thieves, or rapists, or kidnappers, or murderers, yeah, or any one of your descendants, or any of your incarnations, cause you know, hey bitch, we're gonna fuck you up. Tonight, James, it's me, Leilani, Danielle, and a car full of brown girls. We find you on the corner of the Justice Precinct. You've got another woman in a headlock, and I've got my father's pig hunting knife in my fist, and we're coming to get you, sailing round in your resolution, your friendship, your discovery, and your fucking free love. Watch your ribs, James, because I'm coming with kalani o pu'u, kanaka po lei, kanaina, keave o pala, kukai ilimoku, who is a god, and nua, who is a king with a knife. And then, James, we're going to fuck you up for good, bitch. <laughs> so when lo the second lockdown ended, we decided uh, to rescue a beautiful 18-month staffy cross called Tana, um, he was badly mistreated. He has a lot of triggers. So my husband thought it would be a great idea to buy a nine-week-old puppy called um, Aries, who is a um, Jack Russell Fox Terrier cross. <laughs> and I'm the only one who works from home. <laughs> this is called Aries, who's the Staffy, uh, the, the Fox Terrier, Russell, Jack Russell Fox Terrier cross. Aries must go, <laughs> or two dogs, one house. <laughs> Big dog is four times bigger, was here first, and Aries doesn't give a flying fuck. Aries is too much, too horny, too hungry, too ornery, too big-hearted for the slip of his sleek body. He fights those four times his size, madly humps legs the shape of Espirito Santo, rams his head into jaws of death the size of Big Bay, and says, fucking eat me, I dare ya. <laughs> Ares must go. Little god of war, conquering where none have conquered before. But big dog's bone bonds are buried deep in time. 
Aries chews big dog's meat, leaps out of tall round laundry baskets in a single bound, shits where he likes, when he likes. But for liver, Aries will sacrifice his litter, his mother, his father, the perfectly round brown circles on his back. For liver, he will suffer big dog's bites and the crushing weight of those four times bigger. For liver, he will ram jam anyone, anything in his way. For liver, he will sit like Buddha, eyes praying to the skies. For liver, he will dance like Shiva, left leg lifted high, ringed by belly's fire. For liver, he is lover, slinging the soft hammock of his body across your chest, beating down every other dog. So, Aries must go. <laughs> Thank you. Did you want to read the last poem? Um, that's a wild honey wrap. So um, the, the other poets and I will be at the signing table. So I think it's time to say a huge thank you to Morin for our conversation and to the poets and to you for coming and supporting this event. And I still feel like an Auckland ghost, but I'm going to go and sit at the signing table. And tomorrow, if you know any children who love doing poetry, I am doing a poetry session with children for an hour at the library somewhere. So, yeah, I'm really excited about that. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.